I'll be reading the entirety of uh, chapter 16 and the first seven verses of 17. And so you can grab your Bibles, open them up, and we'll be reading those together. They sat out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. But the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that, they may that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we? that you grumble against us. And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be fill filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given to you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. And they gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it, it was an omer. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until morning. So they laid aside until the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. 
And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel came, and it's uh, called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the, head, and the taste of it like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout all your generations so they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place in it before the Lord to be kept throughout the generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to the habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an FF. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved from, on from the wilderness uh, of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to him, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff of which you will strike the, which, with which you struck the Nile, and go. Before I will stand, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so, in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is the reading of God's word. If you just uh, pray with me this morning. Jesus, we need your help again this morning. We need soft hearts. We need courageous hearts. We need clarity, we need wisdom, we need so many things. We don't deserve your grace, but we need it and we ask for it. And so help us this morning to hear your word and to have the courage, would you give us courage to obey it? It's in your beautiful name we pray, amen. Amen, well my name is Trev and uh, happy to be here this morning to deliver uh, our word this morning. We're in the book of Exodus, which is the story of God really developing his people in very unusual places and in unusual ways. And actually, some of us have the image of kind of what's going on in the book of Exodus. And once the 10th plagues are over and the Passover is done, it trails off and the action is just a bunch of instructions on uh, building something that doesn't have any connection to my life in terms of the tabernacle and all of those things. But actually, this is, that's not true about the book of Exodus. It, it really is ramping up here. Uh, the action is getting good because it's actually getting very valuable to us. 
Uh, and this morning we want to look at chapters 16 and 17, uh, which is essentially the story of God providing bread and God providing water. I wish we could go into uh, the story of Amalek or Amalek, if you will, um, but we can't. So this morning we want to talk about uh, not some of the things that maybe jump out at you in the text, which is probably like Sabbath, um, maybe this is a story about bread from heaven and Jesus said, uh, I don't live by bread alone, but by the word of God. So this is maybe a, a Bible reading message, but it's actually not. Um, not that you can't make some of those applications, but here's what I want us to understand this morning. These, these texts act like an enormous, clear mirror slash magnifying glass into God's heart and our heart. These texts show us very clearly what God is like. I do think they show us clearly what we are like. And so that's how I want to organize my time this morning, talking about what God's heart is like and talking about what our hearts are like and then why that really matters, how Jesus factors into all of this. And so uh, before I say that, I actually have to make some comments about the word heart. And I do this regularly, and so if you're new, hopefully this is helpful. If you've been here for a while, um, this is a good reminder. But essentially, when I talk about the word heart, I, I'm probably not using it at all in the sense that the definition that our culture would have of the word heart. Our culture understands the word heart and defines the word heart as the place where our emotions are and our passions are. But the Bible is much more comprehensive than that. Um, if, if you know anything about your own emotions, you know that you have to think through them and that your emotions, as you think through them, also reveal what actions you end up taking. And so there's a, even though we say that our heart is about what goes on emotionally, actually, even the way we respond proves that it is not the only factor in terms of heart. Uh, one writer says, your heart is what makes you tick. It's why you do things. It's, it's the motivation that you have. It's the rationality that you use to get there. In fact, when we read uh, this morning uh, about the catechism, it said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But I would say you could almost put a semicolon after the word heart. In other words, love the Lord with all your heart. That means by using your mind, your soul, your will, and your strength, your emotions. The reason why we have a heart like this is because God has a heart like this. So we actually spent some time earlier this year talking through uh, us as humans being made in the image of God. And so some of us have never actually made this connection that we have one of these hearts like this because God has one of these hearts. And he wanted us to know and understand his heart and therefore he gave us one to do this with. But the really interesting thing is, as we examine God's heart, we then intuitively compare it with ours and we realize how broken our hearts are, how broken our decision-making center actually is, that so many times, no matter how hard we want to have a better heart, if someone doesn't fix it, we're hopeless. 
And so this morning, I want to break our morning by talking about what we see in this text that's from God's heart, and then I want to talk about what from this text we see in our own hearts, and then thirdly, why this matters to us, and essentially, why it's so important that we understand Jesus in response to that. So first of all, what this says about God's heart. Excuse me. What this says about God's heart. Well, we see that right away, God tests his people. That's right in the very first few verses. It says, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. This is verse 4 in chapter 16. To gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. Now, this is something that God does in the text, but I want us to see that God does it because he has something previous that's going on in his heart. He has a desire that's going on in his heart. He has a motivation. He has a character that comes out of that. In other words, he just doesn't want to see his, he doesn't want us to see just his actions. He wants us to see that his actions come from his heart, just like ours do. And he tests, actually, because he's a righteous, holy, good, and perfect God. That's why he tests us. That's, that's why you would test anyone, right? Like, if you went into university and you took a test, let's just say, uh, hypothetically, and at the end of that test, you hand it in the paper and you ask the professor, the one giving the test, you said, uh, when am I going to find out how I do on the test? And the professor responded by saying, oh, I don't know. I have no idea whether what you said was right or wrong. <laughs> you would say, oh, wow, that is, the, that is the sound of me leaving this university and finding out a, a better university. Because you expect the person who's giving the test to what? Know the answers, Right? But I, I don't want us to think of tests as in just know the answers, but a test as in revealing what's there. So when you do a, to uh, let, let's just say, you do a soil test, right? I have a brother-in-law who does soil tests. That doesn't mean he goes out and he asks multiple choice questions of the soil. What does he do? He, he does something, whatever it is, to find out what's really in the soil. That's why you do that soil test. Right? You don't do a soil test because you're like, oh, I hope there's this in the soil, or I'd like the soil to be like this. You say, I want to know exactly what's in the soil, right or wrong. I want to know if it's contaminated, not contaminated, good, pure, whatever it is. That's the kind of test that God wants to do on his people. But why? So that he can get more information? No, no, no. He knows the information already. Why would he test people? Because he wants us to know what's really in our hearts. Because one of the things we struggle with most as humans is the inability to see ourselves for who we really are. Am I right or am I right? Is there anyone who, before coming here this morning, looks in a mirror? Anyone? You all didn't look in a mirror. Well, that's impressive. I have never been here on a Sunday morning not having looked in the mirror. Now, I know what I look like. Why would I look in the mirror? I want to make sure that what I think I look like is what I look like. This is God saying, you think you're like this? Just can I show you a mirror? You got a big piece of banana on your face. 
you still got a, a big glob of hair gel. I just want you to know that. This is why God gives manna, not simply to show he can perform miracles. That's the easy part. The hard part is getting through the people's heads that they don't trust him yet, and they're struggling with it. We need to see God as a perfect God, a holy God, who doesn't test us because he's trying to pinpoint us into wrong answers, but simply that he's trying to help us understand who we are so we can get the help, so that we can actually change. Because I can't wipe away that piece of banana from my face until I see where it is. Have you ever tried to help someone who has food on their face while you're talking to them? And you're like, and they're like, oh, here? No, here, here, here. Let, let me get it for you, right? You can see it so easy, but they can't. That's why. This is why God is so gracious in his testing. Can we see that? This is an act of God's mercy and grace, not embarrassment and shame. He's not pointing these things out so he can, you know, condemn you. He could do that so easily. He doesn't want to do that. He wants to help you so that you can change, so that you can know his holiness. He provides in the text. And here's how I want us to see this. He provides, why? Because he's great? Yes, he is, actually. But he doesn't provide for that reason only. He provides because he's already generous in his heart. He's already generous. Have you ever met someone who's generous? I love being around generous people because they make you feel at home. They bring peace to your life. They, they, they put you at ease. They prevent you from being anxious. I have some very, very generous friends and it always results in thankfulness when I truly understand it. This is how God is, he's generous. He doesn't also merely supply their needs. Did you notice that in the text as he went through? Even as he said, make the manna. Uh, he didn't say, uh, make this amount, and if people can't get up on time like the lazy bums that they are, then they miss out. No, he says, get up, gather as much as you possibly can. It's going to be enough. Even if someone else is a better gatherer than you, they're not a millennial, they don't have a problem getting up at 11, you're still going to be full. You're, you're going to be full. That's in the morning. In the evening, you're going to have quail. You're going to have meat. A little aside, uh, I think we should bring back church, church meat pots. We have church potlucks. No? Am I, am I wrong? Maybe it's just me. Meat pots. That sounds, sounds great. But something that is not in God's vocabulary is good enough. His grace isn't good enough. You don't run out of it. You don't run out of grace. God says, when this is what you need, I want to give more. I want to give more. I want to go beyond. He's a God of abundance because that's generosity. Generosity isn't just giving people what they need. It's giving people way more than they need and way more than they deserve. And that's why at Christmas, one of my favorite things in the world is when my kids expect this and they get this. 
I love watching their faces. It's pure joy. Pure joy. And joy is contagious when you watch it in other people. This is what God wants. He's like, I'm contagious. I want my generosity to be, to be so contagious. What else do we see in the text? We see he reveals himself to his people, but why? So that they have information? No, that's what he did with Egypt. That's the hard way to get revelation. So Egypt understood very clearly who God was, but they weren't on his side. They discovered who God was and how glorious he was by trying to breathe underwater, and it didn't work out very well. God says, I don't want to show my glory that way, although I could, because that's not what I'm like. Why? I want you to know me. I want you to know what I'm like. I don't want you to know information about me. I want you to know me. Again, some of us need this corrective in our understanding of who God is because we are working so hard to get to know more about God. And he says, yeah, you don't need more information. You need to feel me in your gut. You, you need to feel this visceral sense of the awesomeness and holiness of who he is. Why? Because he's so glorious, he knows the absolute best thing for you is him. You are the best thing for me, he would say. Or Sorry, I am the best thing for you, he would say. The more you know about me, the better off it will be for you. What else does it say? It says he corrects. He does do some correction. Now again, we need some correction in our understanding of God's correction. God's correction commonly being called God's discipline for us. How many of us enjoy discipline, right? No hands should go up. I don't. I don't enjoy discipline at all. And I'm pretty sure I've told God that. And I certainly told my parents that. They're like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I'm like, ah, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Until I became a parent and I was like, oh, different kind of hurt. Interesting. Because I have for so long seen God's discipline as God's punishment. He does not punish his people. Actually, Hebrews is very clear about that. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse um, 10 and 11, it says this. For they disciplined us, that is the parents, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. He wants us to experience his holiness not his wrath. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Even Jesus experienced God's discipline. And here's the difference between the correction the way we typically do it and correction the way God does it. So the correctional system, as we call it, the, you know, the penal system in Canada, is it a correctional system? No, not really. I don't know very many people who have witnessed uh, someone doing a heinous crime and they said, you know, I, I hope at the end of it that this person gets corrected, rehabilitated, and, and a, a healthy part of society again. No, what do we say? I hope they get what's coming to them. 
I hope they pay for this. I hope they rot in prison. I hope someone beats them up in prison. I was like, well, that's not correction. That's punishment, vengeance. Discipline is for our good. An athlete disciplines him or herself. Why? Not to hurt themselves, but to provide themselves the freedom to compete at the level that they'd love to compete at. They impose on themselves discipline in their habits, their sleep habits, their uh, food habits, so that they have the opportunity to win a race, to, to experience joy. This is what God wants to do for us. We need to understand and see that his discipline in our lives is not to hurt us, harm us, or punish us, but to help us experience God in a deeper way. Lastly, he reminds because he is a promise-keeping God who is steadfast, loyal, faithfulness over a long period of time. It's hard to get under God's skin. That's why he reminds, because he's patient. I don't like reminding people. I don't like being reminded either, by the way. I don't care for it because it makes me feel small. And like I need help, which I do, but I just don't like it. But God doesn't remind us to make us feel small. He reminds us because he says, you're missing out on some of the joy I have designed for you. You see, too many of us even see that Sabbath stuff and go, oh, no, am I going to hear about Sabbath? Oh, I'm going to have to stop working as hard as I am. If you hear that, you don't understand what the Sabbath at all was designed for. It wasn't designed to, to prevent you from doing anything. It was designed to prevent you from dying. The, the Sabbath is God's way of saying, I, I want to help, I, I want to remind you once every seven days that I am the only one capable of working seven days a week. And you're barely able to work six days a week. That's why. It's an act of love. It's an invitation from God to sit in a lawn chair and enjoy his work while he works for you. I mean, that, think, of, think of the humility of God, the luxury of God that he would, he would give us this opportunity to clasp our hands behind our head, drink a cold or hot drink while we watch him work. That's what the Sabbath is. Does that sound like a punishment to you? It doesn't to me. And yet I resist it because I think God's trying to take something away from me. He's not. He's trying to give me something. So even as we see these things, we realize actually these start to show us and point out to us that our hearts are so far from God's heart, aren't they? Even though they are imaged after God's heart, they are tainted and twisted and broken. What does this say about our hearts? Well, it's all over the text. As Aaron read that, did you hear the word grumbling? More than once. I, I kind of like the ESV for that reason. The ESV, it sounds like audible Bible. This is what I heard this morning. Uh, chapter 16. Grumble, 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 grumble. Because that's all it is. They grumble and they grumble and they grumble and they grumble. What's a good definition of the word grumble? 
It's not lament. Grumble is not to lament. To lament something is to grieve over loss. That's very different. To say, this is a painful experience for me is encouraged by God. To complain or grumble is to say, this is a painful experience for me and it's your fault. So there's, there's already angst and frustration expressed to God in grumbling. It's a way of telling God, I just want you to know, God, I'm registering my protest with you. Right? You ever had someone like, I love this in sports sometimes when they have people that play this game in protest. I'm like, but you're still playing the game, you weirdos. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. But it's like, what's the point? You're registering your protest. Ooh. But when you do it against God, it's a pretty serious thing. And you tell God, hey, just so you know, I don't think you're doing that great of a job. And just so you know, if I was in your place, I would do things a whole lot differently and likely a whole lot better. Now, does that sound somewhat blasphemous to you? But you've said it because I have too. Hey, God, this isn't a very good plan. If you uh, refer to the notes that I handed you on page seven, you would see my plan. And it's, whole but, it's a whole lot better than yours. So uh, why don't we go with mine then? God's like, oh, we've been over this. <sighs> if you had any idea how great my plan was for you, you wouldn't have anything to say but you would rejoice in joy. This is Israel saying, we prefer Pharaoh's leadership over the Lord's, over the I am, over the I am who I am who I am, over the creator of the universe. They're like, yeah, uh, we're not that happy with you, God. And although Pharaoh, yeah, I guess he did keep us enslaved and he did kill our firstborn when he could and... He oppressed us. It is a lot better than what you have in mind. But here's the problem. We're just like this, aren't we? If we put ourselves not just watching Israel, but in Israel's shoes, and we realize we're actually just like Israel in our hearts. Because I don't know one person out there who's never said, I'm really angry with God. I really want to give him peace of my mind. What else do they do? What else does this show us about our hearts? Well, it says quarreling. The quarreling shows up twice. Some translations don't do a very good job, but here's the difference between complaining and quarreling. Uh, quarreling steps it up a notch and makes it official. Okay? So you might have a grievance against a neighbor, but that's not quite the same as what? Bringing a lawsuit against your neighbor. That formalizes it, doesn't it? That's what quarreling is. The word for quarrel in the text is actually the same word that you would use to formalize a lawsuit against someone who you have a grievance with. Think about that for a second. This is Israel saying, if we could take God to spiritual court, we would. Where are my lawyers? It's, it's remarkable how bold this is for Israel to do. 
they actually say to him in chapter 17, verse 3, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? It's like, no. That, that's not, weren't you listening like a month ago? That, that's not why. We were brought into the desert to worship God, to know God, to have him revealed to us. And you're worried about bread? This is more than muttering under our breath. Breath. This is Moses in some way who, who, who takes this personally when he really shouldn't because he's only the mouthpiece of God. But he actually joins in them and he cries out to God in the same way. What am I supposed to do with this people, you know? Yahweh, do you know how hard they are to lead? <laughs> and you can just hear God going, yeah, kind of like how hard you are to lead. Like, remember that time when I showed up to you? Three words for you, Moses, burning bush. Some of you didn't get that. <laughs> or it's not funny, so I'll not use that joke again. Do you remember when you were too scared to talk and so I had to get your brother to talk, Moses? You think you're so trusting? You think these people are hard to leave? Remember when you ran away and got married to somebody that mm, we're not totally sure about from a different tribe? R remember when I gave you the right of circumcision and you wouldn't do it? Oh, oh, you, you mean these people are hard to lead, Moses? W what about you? So don't think that Moses is the hero of this story. He's not. He actually joins them in his distrust. Because we see at the very end of, of the text that we were looking in chapter 17 that ultimately they tested the Lord. That's, what, that's, that's the verdict. So they did take God to court and, and God said, uh, yeah, guilty, you. I set out to test you to find out what was in your heart, and you ended up by testing me. See the irony there? That's why I use that text. Starts out, God wants to test his people. How does it end? People trying to test God. Yet you don't find God lightning bolts from the sky, do you? What do you find? You find graciousness, pure graciousness. This text shows me very clearly how far I am from God's heart because my inclination after this is to go, I would start again if I were you, God. <laughs> if, if, if you could flood at this time, you should because this is a disaster. These people just do not get it. Do not give them a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chance. They're not going to get it. How blasphemous is that? Is the Lord among us or not? Like, God, if you're real, why don't you show up? It's the moment where you can almost hear God saying, this is why we can't have nice things, you guys. <laughs> this is why I can't show you more miracles, because it's not working. You're not getting it. And with a smile on his face, like he's not even worried. They grumble, he gives them bread. They quarrel, he gives them water. They test him, 
he fights for them. It's remarkable. But this is where I want to land today. That it's remarkable that not only do we see a picture of God's heart in the text and a picture of our hearts, but we see in the text some very clear ways in which Jesus then becomes for us the perfect fulfillment of this text. And here's what he does. He fulfills God's part and failure, Israel part, but he doesn't fail. He succeeds. He does both at the same time. There's a couple of important passages in the New Testament. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the story is told of Jesus uh, essentially being born. It's important to us at Christmas time, but actually in the grand narrative, it's not as important to some of the scriptural writers as evidenced by the lack of evidence there and a lack of information about the birth of Christ. But you know what's in every single um, gospel except for John is the story of the temptation of Jesus in the desert. And the reason why that is, is because Jesus wanted his people to know that what he was going to do was be the physical manifestation of the same generous, compassionate, correcting, testing, loving, awesome, perfect, holy God that they had seen in Exodus chapter 16 and 17, but he would also fulfill in every way all of the ways that Israel took a test and failed. This is why Jesus gets baptized. He gets baptized because he goes into the water. He comes out of the water, just like Israel went through the water. They were baptized into God's glory, in a sense. They were immersed in his covenant. They were shown that they were his people through that process. And Jesus is identifying with us. He gets baptized, not because he has sins to confess, but because he's identifying with a people who he wants to save. He says, I'm one of you now. He comes out of that. And what does he do? The first thing he does is go into a desert for 40 days instead of 40 years. And he faces the exact same tests that Israel faces. And so the first thing that happens is the people are hungry. Their stomachs are growling. They're wondering if God is going to be there, if he's going to provide for them. And so Satan goes after this with Jesus. And he says, Jesus, I know you have the miraculous powers to turn this stone into bread. Why don't you prove that you're God? Satan's doing what Israel did. But what, how does Jesus respond? He says, I'm not giving in to my stomach growling. I'm not going to allow my hunger pains and my human desires to overtake God's word in my life. Now, he did not have to do that. Jesus should have been the one doing the, doing the testing. But he says, I'll take the tests instead. And I'll pass it. And so he trusts in God's word like Israel should have trusted and like we should have trusted. Satan was trying to find out what was in Jesus' heart and Jesus revealed what was in his heart. There's nothing that's going to stop me from saving the people that I love. Not hunger, not power, not control, not miracles, not magic. Nothing will stop me from saving my people. That's why Satan walked away 
He walked away because eventually he got to the point where he said, this is a disaster. I can't do this. This guy's too good. He's almost too good to be true. He finally left him alone, not because Jesus told him to get lost, but because Jesus proved what was in his heart. It was loving. And so when Jesus grows up, performs miracles, preaches his own gospel to his people and invites people to repent, and he gets to the point where he's getting crucified, not for doing anything, but for doing exactly what God has told him to do. He can look the people that are betraying him, that are putting him on the cross, he can look them right in the eye and say, "Uh, you don't know what you're doing, I forgive you. Do you know why Jesus could do that? Because way back in the desert, that was already in his heart. That's his heart for us. His heart for us is despite all of our rebellion, friends, despite all the ways you admitted, even this morning, how broken your heart is, all the ways where you've looked Jesus straight in the eye and said, you're not that good of a God. He says, if you will trust me, I will still give you salvation. I will still give you what you don't deserve. In fact, this is the way we can understand this. He says, you know, all of the things that I did in the text to prove how great I am, how generous I am, how holy I am, how perfect I am, how amazing I am, and that God is pleased with me and accepts me and is close with me, all of that, he says, I will give to you if you exchange everything you have tried to do, all the good, all the bad, all the brokenness, all the success, if you will give that to me, by the way, it's not good enough, if you will give that to me, I will give to you what I have earned. And now your resume is whatever I have done. And you get to walk into, essentially, the spiritual throne room of God. And God says, how can you be here? You and I, who trusted in Jesus, get to say, this is my resume. Whatever Jesus did is mine. And what happens to Jesus? Well, he takes whatever we deserved. That's why he died. He Shouldn't have been punished, but he was. He shouldn't have experienced the wrath of God, but he did. He shouldn't have had to die for doing nothing, but he did. Why? So that simply by trusting in the fact that Jesus was who he said he was, you and I can have it all. Does that sound like a loophole to you that is just almost unfathomable. It it should. It it should sound crazy. It, It should sound too good to be true. That's why it's called grace. That's why you can't earn it. That's why I'm persuading you this morning as much as I can, don't try to earn it. Don't work harder. Trust more. Don't go home and and try to please God by all the things you're doing. Go home and say, I can't believe God is pleased by me. I can't wait to see his face when I do this. And you do it out of love, out of honor, out of a deep desire 
to think about yourself less and a desire to think about him more. You want that changed heart. I, I know that I do. I desperately want that changed heart. And I, I, think, I think I have to say this. I have read some of the credit card agreements. I know I'm, I'm, I'm not bored. Yeah, I have too much time, clearly. But in a lot of these credit card agreements, there's actually a grace period. There's a grace period. That's what they call it. They call it a grace period. I don't know if they realize they're illustrating the gospel, but they are. Because there is a time when you are required to pay what you owe. And after that time has been determined, there's a grace period whereby you still don't have to pay it. But that great grace period ends, doesn't it? And then you got to pay up what you owe. And friends, because eternity is on my mind a lot these days, I'm saying you're living in a grace period. But you don't know when that ends. And I don't think you want to find out. I'm here to beg you. Receive the grace of God who said, I will pay off this whole credit card if you will trust me. If you will trust me that I'm good. If you'll trust me that my correction will help you. If you'll trust me, I will pay everything off for you. Friends, what would hold you back from receiving the pure, raw, powerful grace of Jesus even this morning? I don't want to invite you to do something. I want to invite you to be redeemed this morning, to be bought back by a God and a Savior who loves you and would go to any length to win you to be part of his family. If that's you this morning, then let me pray for us and for you. Jesus, I am not worth your grace, and nor is anyone here but I am a happy, willing recipient of it. But I'd like to be more happy about it. I'd like to have more joy over the salvation you have offered for me. I'd like to receive in better ways a clearer and clearer picture of your heart so that I can understand my own deep needs to fix my own broken heart. And I know there are some here this morning, Jesus, that that's their prayer too. So would you, in your kindness and your grace, would you open up your grace to us that we may receive it from you? It's in your name we pray. Amen.